My name is Garrett Madden, and I'm class of 2022, and this is my personal leadership philosophy. Garrett Madden's personal leadership philosophy. If we have learned one thing from being a part of ELP, it is that the goal of leadership is to facilitate positive social change. This, I believe, is undeniably true. With this end in mind, it seems to me that there are two axes of analysis in leadership. First, one can analyze how effective the leader is by examining how well they facilitate social change. The eight C's of change, which we have gone over in ELP, are extremely useful for defining this first part of leadership's end, social change. We have covered this extensively. But what about that second part? What does it mean to facilitate positive social change? Is what is positive just up to the eye of the beholder? This leads me to the second way in which one can analyze what it means to be a good leader, by examining the goodness of their ends. My personal leadership philosophy is, a good leader is a good human being who makes a good change, no matter how big or small. Let's look at the case studies of a few leaders. Consider the two greatest American statesmen of the last two centuries, Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. What can we say about both of them? Well, they both facilitated social change, making them highly effective leaders. Consider now those leaders throughout the world whom we unequivocally regard as bad leaders. Hitler and Stalin are fitting examples. What can we say about both of them? They also facilitated a social change. In fact, Hitler and Stalin too were extremely effective at accomplishing what they wanted. All four of these leaders, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Hitler, and Stalin, all knew quite well the eight C's of the social change model and used them in such a way to excel at facilitating social change. They were highly effective leaders. So, why is it so obvious to us that Lincoln and MLK are good leaders, while Hitler and Stalin are bad leaders? The answer is simple. The former were good human beings whose ends were wholly good. The latter's ends were pure evil. My personal leadership philosophy is simple. I believe that to be a good leader is to be a good human being. It seems obvious to me that this is the case because someone is worth following if and only if the change they facilitate is good. I don't care how effective someone is at facilitating change. If one is aiming to eradicate slavery or racism, he is a good leader. If one aims to kill tens of millions of people, he is a bad leader. In other words, if leadership, as defined by the social change model, is to facilitate positive social change, then good leadership is to correctly align social change with the good. Well, the obvious next question is, how do I become a good human being such that my ends as a leader are undeniably and categorically good? The truth is that I do not have a precise answer for this question. But as with most things in life, often the best we can do is ask the right question. Thank you, Father Himes. And this question, I believe, is the most important of them all. There is no way I can know exactly what the good is, true, or what it means to be a good human being. However, I can try.
I've compiled, based on my own real-life experience, the following seven rules. I hope that they begin to formulate an answer to what the good is, what a good human being is, and consequently, what good leadership is. Rule one, honesty is always the best policy. If someone can count on you to tell the truth or to keep your word, you are invaluable to them as a partner, friend, coworker, or leader, because honesty is what underlies basic human respect. So when you are dishonest with someone, you are not treating them with the value of a fully independent moral agent. Everyone wants to be treated like a respectable adult and people will follow you if you do. Honesty is the best policy. Rule two, conscience is sacred. If your will is too weak to follow it, pay attention. If you know that you shouldn't do something before you do it, then just don't do it. I can't tell you how many times I've said out loud, I know I shouldn't do this and did it anyway, but somehow I have regretted it every time. If you can't even follow what's best for you, how can you ever expect to execute what is best for others as a leader? I too am guilty of this, but conscience is sacred. If you can't follow it, pay attention. Rule three, always presuppose that the suffering of others is unjust, but never presuppose the same for yourself. This is a two-part rule. The first part is have empathy for others. Believe them, suffer with them, and support them in any way you can when they tell you that something bad has happened to them. Everyone is bound to encounter hard times. As a leader, a goal you should have is to help eradicate the unnecessary suffering of others. The second part regards suffering of yourself. As for yourself, when you are suffering, check to see if there's anything that you might have done to make it more likely that you are suffering. Many times I have found that I was the source of my own suffering and pain. And recognizing that is a much easier solution to my own suffering than abdicating the responsibility of it to someone or something else. As a leader, a goal you should have for yourself is to find the advantages of suffering. Rule four, expect the worst, but hope for the best. There's no goal or prayer too big to be achieved. Despite the fact that it is mysterious, enigmatic, and on the surface, totally inconceivable, I have a strange suspicion that Mark 11, 22 to 23, my favorite passage from the Bible, is true. Quote, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says, unquote. Rule five, if you love someone, tell them, or at least compliment their shoes. Life is too short not to say what is on your mind. Take a risk, especially when it comes to love. Yes, words are powerful and they should not be cheapened, but words spoken out of love can never be cheapened. Love is one of the great reasons that we are here. Rule six, be merciful. If someone wrongs you, you should always forgive them, unless doing so will make you resentful of them or resentful of the world. Forgiveness is twice blessed because it frees the forgiver 
from holding a grudge and it frees the forgiven from guilt. Rule seven, tell stories. They explain more than you could ever directly express. I've found that telling stories is one of the best ways that human beings communicate. Stories bring together humor, imagination, and morality in a way that allows a storyteller to capture implicitly much of what human beings cannot explicitly verbalize. Oftentimes as human beings, we aren't smart enough or we don't have the words to say what we mean. To that end, I want to conclude my personal leadership philosophy by telling one of my favorite stories from the life of our nation's 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, hoping that it might fully bring out what it means to be a good human being and by extension, a good leader. The story, which may well be apocryphal, goes like this. During the fall of 1858, in the midst of the now famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, Abraham Lincoln traversed the entire state of Illinois. Shaking hands and cautiously establishing his anti-slavery position, he was in pursuit of votes for the next year's Illinois Senate election. Now, at the time he made his campaign stop in a small town by the name of Metamora that October, Lincoln was still riding the legal circuits in Illinois, though he could not have possibly expected that he would need to go to court in Metamora for the case that he did that day. Lincoln, hearing the rumblings of her case, felt compelled to argue on behalf of Melissa Goings, a 70-year-old woman on trial for murdering her husband. He was choking her, she told Lincoln upon meeting him, and out of self-defense, she struck him with a piece of firewood, fracturing his skull and killing him. While the town's judge was intent on putting Mrs. Goings in jail, Lincoln was not keen to see her convicted, for rumor had it that Mr. Goings was that kind of husband. As the story goes, Lincoln asked the judge for a delay in court proceedings in order that he might become more familiar with the case. Such delay was denied, but Lincoln and Mrs. Goings were granted a short recess a few hours into testimony. The two went into a room in the courthouse to confer, but after a number of minutes, Lincoln alone emerged. The window in the room was found to be wide open. It was believed that Mrs. Goings may have climbed out of it. Lincoln, on returning to the courtroom, was asked by the judge what had happened to his client. Lincoln told the judge that right before he left her in the room, Mrs. Going asked him where she might get a drink of water, and he told her, Tennessee. Melissa Goings was never found, and the Metamore judge forgave the bondsman her bail. You see, a list of rules only goes so far. The good is more complicated than following the dictum, honesty is always the best policy. Rule one, as you might remember. Honest Abe is sure not too honest in this story, but that seems to be quite a contradiction, doesn't it? Telling a story about a man remembered for honesty and bravery who lies? But somehow, Mr. Lincoln still feels good and right and just in this story. Only a story can say that the greatest president ever, over all of our nation's laws, was at one point in time a bender of them. In fact, only a story, I believe, can capture the kind of complication that is inherent in life. It seems to me that all stories really just tell the same story. And the great 20th century American author, John Steinbeck, shared the sentiment. He said of stories, quote, 
We only have one story. All novels, all poetry are built on the never ending contest in ourselves of good and evil, unquote. My friends, life is endlessly complicated. It is ridden with suffering. People betray, people kill, and people die. Things fall apart. Only splashes of love provide a reprieve from it all, and even those are fleeting. Life is, in a word, bad. But that we have a chance to counteract that bad with the good we have as conscious moral agents is what it means to be alive. To be a good person is simply to try to figure out what it means to be a good person. And the project of a leader is to live out that pursuit with unbridled enthusiasm. Thank you. So Garrett, in the second of your seven rules, you state, quote, conscience is sacred. If your will is too weak to follow it, pay attention. You know, I think it's safe to say that as you've described, we've all at some point done that thing where we ignored that warning voice in our heads. Do you have any advice of what steps leaders can take to kind of ground themselves in their conscience in moments like these? Yeah, so first of all, it's a great question. And in fact, I myself have been struggling with how to follow my conscience in recent months. Um, I think I do have one uh, small breakthrough practice um, that I've been taking up in the past few months, meditation. Um, I kind of have one of those minds which is seemingly always racing with thoughts. And I think that in those moments where it's most difficult to do what you know you should do, if your mind is racing with thoughts, you won't be able to hear your conscience, so to speak. So in general, meditation has helped me kind of slow the pace of those thoughts and not rush to make any choices without consulting my conscience first. Um, meditation has definitely been a great proactive way for me to follow my conscience, but there's kind of another way that too I've found uh, learning by my mistakes. I think it's often very productive to think about sometimes when we've done something that we wish we wouldn't have and maybe the embarrassment or the shame of it can end up being a source uh, if we accept that and allow it to become part of that moment and to learn from it, uh, we can really become better out of it. So again, uh, meditation and just learning from our mistakes, I think that's a great way to really uh, follow your conscience. In step five, you say, quote, if you love someone, tell them, or at least compliment their shoes. Um, telling someone you love them, whether it be romantically or platonically, is, is something that takes a lot of vulnerability. And as you mentioned, it, it's, it's a big risk, I think, particularly when looking in the face of potential rejection. What does it take to be able to, to kind of take the dive? Is it, is it always worth it? What is there to gain from these experiences? So, uh, yeah, first, um, there is a little bit of a story behind complimenting someone's shoes, uh, I remember the very first time I ever really like romantically liked a girl around middle school and asked my dad, you know, what do you do about this? And he says, you know, if you ever find something you like about her, something as simple as the shoes she's wearing, just say, hey, I like your shoes and see what happens. <laughs> so being a middle school boy, I went to school the next day and told the girl that I liked her shoes, just listened straight to my dad's advice. Um, it never really worked out for me with the girl, but I think what my dad said then um, 
is kind of what I'm trying to get at in rule five. Basically, if you love someone, tell them. Uh, I think I said, you know, words that are expressed out of love can never be cheapened. Um, basically, what I think is at the very bottom of this rule is self-confidence and self-love. You know, it's a rule uh, to believe in yourself, but more importantly, to act on the fact that you believe in yourself. Uh, I think it's important not just to believe, oh, I believe in myself, but also to be willing to act on it. Um, yes, you're right. I agree that telling someone you love them is a very big risk. But if you have some confidence in who you are and some love for yourself, then it won't matter what anyone else thinks of you or if you get rejected because you'll love yourself nonetheless. Um, another thing about this rule, I really think that fortune favors the bold. I believe that if we all think we're worthy of love and then act on it, our chances are just that much better. Um, but at the end of the day, again, this rule is about loving yourself. Someone who's self-confident has so much less to worry about in facing rejection because no matter what someone else says to them, when you say, I love you, at the end of the day, you will always have yourself. So, so you explain, and I think quite wisely, that forgiveness is twice blessed because it frees the forgiver from holding a grudge and it frees the forgiven from guilt. So that, that kind of leads me to the question is, forgiveness inherently a selfless act? Should we always forgive? Or, or is forgiveness something that needs to be earned? Yeah, so again, again a great question. Uh, first, I want to talk about um, that quote, uh, forgiveness being twice blessed. It's actually taken from Portia's speech in uh, The Merchant of Venice, if you remember that. Uh, <laughs> that I really, I think that that's one of the most interesting scenes in any of Shakespeare's plays. Um, because what Portia's kind of doing in that speech is she's encouraging this forgiveness, but then consequently, she ends up kind of trying to take revenge on Shylock. Um, but this is kind of Shakespeare's way of getting to the very question that you're asking. And I think what Shakespeare says, and what I would echo the sentiment, is that forgiveness is always best in theory, but it's incredibly hard to put into practice. Um, you know, I made the, the case in Rule 6, be merciful, that one should always forgive unless doing so will make you resentful. And I think this is an admission that Forgiving is an expressly selfish act. You know, I'm kind of of the mindset that anything we do is inherently selfish. But for a person who has been wronged or for a person with the ability to forgive, this is a time in which they deserve to be doing something for themselves, virtually by definition. I don't think we should have a vengeful culture, but I do think we should have a reciprocal culture. And forgiveness, in my opinion, is a way to have the latter without slipping into the former. You also really lay into the idea of suffering with others as being a necessary facet of leadership. Um, can I ask, what do you mean by suffering? What is the role of empathy in leadership? So yeah, this is a, this is a great question. Um, I would say this is kind of pertains to rule three. Um, and the first part of that is, I think, is relatively uncontroversial. It says, always presuppose that the suffering of others is unjust. And that that just means be empathetic and understanding of other people. Um, I hope the way I formulate it is kind of a new way for people to consider it, but I think this is generally uh, understood to be true for leaders. Um, but conversely, I would say that kind of the second part of rule three is the most controversial part of my whole philosophy. It says, 
never presuppose the same for yourself. Um, that is, never assume that the suffering you are experiencing is unjust. So I want to tell a little bit of a story that explains that. Um, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I was involved in a romantic relationship. And uh, by the end of it, we decided to go, since we were going to different schools, that uh, we would break before college. Um, however, not even a week since we had said goodbye, I found out that my former girlfriend was now seeing someone else. And I felt very, very, very betrayed by that. In the ensuing months, I regarded what had happened to me at the beginning of the year as something terrible that had happened to me. And maybe it was. But by January or February of the next year, I still was feeling so bad. I had to ask myself, you know, at what point was my anger at her unreasonable? I simply asked myself, is her action the source of your pain now, or are you making yourself miserable and attributing all the blame to her? I realized that at some point, I was the one becoming the source of my own sort of bad feelings in this time. And I think that if other people are astute and honest with themselves, they may come to this realization. Now, of course, I'm not saying that I don't recognize the uh, influence of tragedy in people's lives and terrible things do happen. But I think that there are some moments where if we can be honest with ourselves, we can bring our own self out of suffering. It's a very difficult thing to do, but important to pay attention to. But to turn to kind of the broader question about suffering being necessary, um, my definition of suffering is to feel as though one is less than their potential. And it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, a lot of the world's main religions have this life is suffering uh, kind of Buddhist doctrine, of course, and the Christian doctrine of original sin. I think that's just because as limited finite beings, we are virtually always less than our potential. Uh, so the job of a leader, as you asked, is basically to accept this fact, accept that we are limited, we are finite creatures. And... Um, when we are involved in individual and group work, we're not always going to succeed. You know, this kind of leads into the idea of accepting failure and being okay with feedback. Um, all rule three is really saying is that when you see other people fail, give them some grace. Assume that something has gone terribly wrong for them and that it's not their fault. You might investigate later, of course, and realize that no, this failure is entirely because of them. However, this is not the starting place for a leader. A leader takes an empathic assumption in a situation like this. However, with respect to themselves, a leader is especially disciplined. This is where that controversial assumption comes in. But all it says is, assume the reason that your group project failed was because of something you did and not what someone else did. Take care of yourself before you go around blaming someone else, in other words. I think even though this is a bit of brutal honesty, I think it's really important for people to understand. Well, I, I really appreciate you being vulnerable with us and sharing that story. Um, and, and it kind of leads me into the question, listening to you answer that question and, and listening to your leadership philosophy as a whole, your philosophy comes from a, a place that seems very grounded in your own code of ethics as a result of your own experiences. So should someone's leadership philosophy always be grounded in experience alone or, or is there something else to it? So yeah, this is another a great question. You're right. You know, these rules really are all from my own personal experience. And I believe that, yes, 
a leadership philosophy like this should be grounded in experience alone. Now, saying that uh, a leadership philosophy like this should be grounded in experience alone might lead one to think that I agree with sort of a relativistic philosophy, but this cannot be further from the truth. I think that a necessary part of analyzing one's experience and making a philosophy out of it is honesty. That is the reason that my very first rule, honesty is always the best policy, is crucially important. To me, I think that no matter one's experience, if you're honest with yourself about that experience, you will come to what it means to be a good leader and a good person. I think I've tried to be as honest as I can be about my own experience in this philosophy. While I'm not saying that my rules are perfectly constitutive of what it means to be a good leader, I think that if other people are as honest as they can be with themselves, they will find some truth in what I've said. You know, there's a couple things that really scare me about people uh, on campus sometimes. One of them is ideological possession. I see a lot of young people on campus who struggle to have an honest conversation, either because they don't know what they think or because when they do try to speak, they kind of have an ideology that speaks for them. And I think a lot of this is brought on by my second worry, which is social media. I think that honest conversation is really the way that uh, a generation in a society finds truth. And if people can no longer think for themselves, but rely on a particular Twitter page for their ideas, then the pursuit of truth um, becomes much more difficult. So really, again, I just think that if people are honest with each other, uh, that is the best way to come to a philosophy and the best way to live your life, so. Well, Garrett, you know, thank you so, so much for coming and taking the time to speak with us today. Um, Your wisdom and insight are, are deeply appreciated. Now, we always like to end the podcast on a bit of a lighter note. So I, I've got a question that's of quite a bit of controversy, um, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. So what do you think, the old Plex or the new Plex? Ooh, that's a very tough question, but I'm <laughs> going to have to go with new Plex. I'm a ref, so I ref intramural basketball, and at the old Plex, there was hardly any space between the courts. Uh, the new Plex is awesome. Uh, I love reffing in there. Shout out to IMs. Um, <laughs> great new space for our campus, really. Well, I've got to ask then, do you call it Margo's or, or the new Plex? I call it new Plex. I don't know if that's okay by my boss's standards, but <laughs> new Plex for sure. Nice. Okay. Well, we won't tell them. We'll make sure they don't <laughs> listen to this. All right. Well, thank you. Hey, Garrett, thank you so much again for coming. All right. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on Bjorn. Good to talk to you. Have a good one.